Welcome to Uncommons, a podcast focused on Canadian politics. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. In this episode, we explore the health response to COVID-19. Do we have enough personal protective equipment? Are we mobilizing fast enough to scale up the testing and tracing required? I'm joined by Sarah Downey, the president and CEO of Michael Guerin Hospital, our local hospital here in Beaches, East York. I'm later joined by Danielle Allen, professor and the director of the Ethics Center at Harvard University, leading a team of experts publishing white papers in response to the pandemic. First, here's my conversation with Sarah about the needs and experience of frontline healthcare workers and hospitals. Thanks, Sarah, for joining me. I really appreciate it in the context of everything you are doing. I appreciate you taking the time. And I also just at the outset just want to say how thankful I am and, and our community is for your work at Michael Guerin Hospital and the work of all frontline healthcare workers who have, it's incredible what you are, what you are all doing on our behalf. So I just want to say thank you. And my first question, which is on, I think everyone's mind is personal protective equipment. And do you at Michael Guerin Hospital have the equipment that you need? So uh, Nate, um, there's a lot of elements to personal protective equipment. And, uh, and as long as we continue to get the stock in every day and every week from our warehouses, um, then we have implemented a number of strategies to try to protect enough PPE. Um, for today, we're fine. For this week, we're fine. But it's, what worries us is really if we end up in a very large volume of COVID cases, will we have enough? Um, so it's, it's a multi-pronged question. And I would say today we're fine. Over the next week, I think we're fine. But we're trying to make sure we have the right stuff if we end up in a terrible place, the way New York, for instance, has been. But so we've, we've, read, we've read about some Ontario hospitals that have said we're going to see shortages. And obviously, we now see PPE, thankfully, coming into the country very quickly. And, and hopefully, those shortages are, are not so dire. You at Michael Guerin, though, have taken a number of steps to ensure that that kind of critical shortage doesn't happen quickly, among other steps, I think, that you, you've taken yeah. beyond PPE. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one that people go to most is masks. So maybe I'll explain briefly our mask strategy. Um, so, as you know, we've done a community campaign uh, to, um, to make masks, fabric masks. Here's one, for instance, beautiful masks. And we get regularly dropped off from across our neighborhoods, these fabulous masks, as done by the, the uh, pattern that's on the Foundation's website. So our vision of these masks is that ultimately every, every patient, every visitor that comes to Michael Guerin for everything can wear these and, and be safe in our environment and protect our staff in case for instance, they're asymptomatic for COVID and develop it later, they will have had a mask in our facility to protect people and they take them home if they wish or leave them and we wash them. Um, so for healthcare workers, uh, we have uh, for everybody the surgical mask, which is this one, the ear loop mask. Um, and this one we get a little bit worried about, will there be enough surgical masks? And so uh, we give every uh, patient facing staff two of these a day. We give every non-patient facing staff one of these a day people like me, and we use it. And if, for instance, it got soiled or ripped or torn, we'd obviously replace it, but we've implemented, you know, guidelines to minimize the use. And then we have very specific guidelines in place for when you need the N95 mask. And they're for very specific procedures on patients who have COVID or suspected COVID, called aerosol generating medical procedures. And that's when you really need more protection than the surgical mask. And so we have guidelines. In fact, the N95 masks we are collecting after their use, we believe there will be approaches to sterilization and repurposing of them. 
um, that we're looking for. And so between masking our community and our patients with these fabulous masks that our wonderful uh, community members have done for us, uh, rationing to some degree, but safely the use of things like the surgical masks and then the N95s are available when we really need them has kind of been our approach. And, uh, and if we can maintain this and our, our supplies continue in the way they have been every day and every week, then we think we'll be fine. Uh, the problem will be is if the warehouses are empty and the, the N95s are stopped at the Canadian border. And so I think it's really important what our governments are doing is try to preserve the flow of stock to us so we can continue with these practices. So you, you are doing at the local level everything you can do to conserve PPE. And then it fundamentally is up to us at the federal level and at the provincial level working together to make sure you have the resources that you need on a, on a going forward basis. But it's not just PPE that you have taken measures to protect at Michael Guerin. Yeah. You've also taken measures to make sure that COVID patients don't interact with other patients in your hospital. Yeah, so um, we regularly see every day we diagnose people with COVID-19. Mercifully, fortunately, many are well and don't require admission. At the current moment, uh, we have eight patients on our regular acute care units and we put them together on a respiratory unit where we have specialized expertise. We have four in the intensive care unit. We actually have three going home today, so a lot of people are recovering from COVID. Um, so currently, we haven't maxed out our capacity. We've canceled surgery to a large degree to create capacity for people who are very ill that need to come in, and we haven't had to enact all that yet. So we do. We have a respiratory unit. It gets very busy at times like the flu. They're experts in uh, handling respiratory um, illnesses and contagious illnesses like COVID-19. And so uh, that's where we cohort our patients currently, but we actually have a plan and our opening units that should we end up, you know, uh, in a situation where we have a lot more COVID patients, where we can create COVID units, non-COVID units. Uh, we require lots of testing to be able to, you know, separate those people, because of course some people at the onset are, are asymptomatic. Um, but really we have a plan uh, to convert our hospital uh, to uh, really a large acute care and ICU facility should we end up uh, requiring it in the near future. And you mentioned the need for testing, and I, and I just got to pause here a little bit because I was reading, today's April 8th, and just yesterday I was reading Ontario on a, per 100,000 residents is testing 563 people versus Alberta almost three times that, 1468, Quebec 1231. And we read that we are not even hitting the capacity that we have. Do you see testing, the need for testing to scale up more quickly? And is it a matter of supplies? Is it a matter of human resources? What can be done to increase the scale of testing? Yeah, so we certainly need more testing. I would say that uh, mercifully, Michael Guerin Hospital in a partnership we have in a lab with Sunnybrook, North York and Scarborough Health Network created our own ability to do testing in our shared hospital lab. Um, which is in North York. And so we have prioritized um, healthcare workers because we have to understand if they can get back to work and we have screening at our doors for symptoms of COVID. So we do testing of healthcare workers and of inpatients to be able to properly protect our staff and, and provide the right care to COVID patients to keep them safe. We'd love to taste, test every surgical patient. We'd love to test everybody in the emergency department. We'd love to test everybody who's shown up in our assessment center. We'd love to know that our communities are being tested, Is it, does it exist in families? Uh, that has been the successful strategy of places like South Korea. That requires a public health 
intervention, but I, I know that we would love to um, test a lot more in the hospital. We just have had limited capacity and we need our tests turnaround quickly. So we can't you know, flood our limited capacity today. And what is the turnaround today? I, I, I read in South Korea about these drive-through testing centers that can turn the tests around in 10 minutes and you receive a, a, your results by text message. Uh, I don't know, we obviously are not there in Ontario. No, and that's not the testing we're doing in our lab. And I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in, in that test, but I'd love to have it here. When we send our tests to our shared hospital lab, we get the results in 24 to 48 hours, which we need to get healthcare workers back to work if they're COVID negative. And we need to, <clears throat> to understand the precautions required for inpatients that we are that are suspect COVID patients to properly cohort and organize care for them differently. It seems testing is absolutely necessary, as you say, for healthcare professionals and and to protect other patients in the hospital. But as we want to not only save lives in the course of this pandemic, but also return to some sense of normalcy in our society, testing becomes even more critical. And we, we ought to be looking at, you know, we, the, the numbers we're looking at today on testing are not going to get us to that sense of normalcy in any way whatsoever. So it seems that uh, based on my own reading and, and consultations, I'm thinking PPE and testing ought to be the priorities. Is there anything else you would, you would say from a, from a national level, I, I should be focused on in my conversations with the health minister and others? Yeah, I mean, I, I think those are two really important topics um, and to stabilize that would offer a lot of help and support. I, I think the public health measures and a continued focus on um, physical distancing, closure of non-essential businesses, the school closures, all those things to try to flatten the curve. It remains incredibly important. We are not at the peak. You know, our estimates are it'll be weeks before a peak comes. And uh, while we're not overwhelmed today, uh, you know, you can have a bad day and you can be on a bad path. And uh, that's what we're getting the hospital sector ready for is should we, you know, diagnose more people with COVID than we have in the past. And we do watch, you know, we have we have modeling. We've looked at the, the province's modeling that was released, just trying to be sure that we have a hospital capacity in place to deal with it should our numbers increase dramatically. And so it's been important, you know, many organizations have, you know, given licenses to retired healthcare workers to be able to come back to work. Um, they need to know that if they come back to work, they're safe with PPE uh, and, and responsible hospital practices. So I support that. Um, yeah, a number of things to try to get more workers, because that will be our rate limiting step, uh, our workers. And then the other thing that would be good to have, which has been hard to procure, has been ventilators. And again, these are global shortages. We see what happens in the world. Um, and we certainly would love to have more um, ventilators to be able to increase our capacity in the ICUs. And we have a plan to go from our 17-bed ICU to 35 with existing equipment, uh, but we'd love to be able to get to 50. And that would require actually having ventilators and the orders, even if we put them in today, the best guess is July or August for new ventilators to be able to come. So if we can source ventilator solutions locally, it'll give many of our people um, some reassurance that if it's needed, we can expand even more. And that the, the system won't be overwhelmed. I, in the East End here, we have seen uh, some deaths. We, we've seen, I mean, you mentioned your work expanding strategies at the hospital, but I know also you are, you and healthcare workers from MGH are in the community yeah. helping in long-term care facilities as well. Yeah. And 
at St. Clair O'Connor community, there have been four deaths from the most recent news that I've seen. And, and it's such a wonderful, uh, such a wonderful home for, for so many and so tragically impacted. And the advice to people in the community, I mean, we, we, we have to physically distance. We have to stay home as much as reasonably possible so that people like you and our frontline healthcare workers are able to do the work uh, safely. But are there other things we ought to be doing? I, I saw recently that uh, Dr. Tam has suggested people should wear masks when out in public. Are there other things we so that we don't see more deaths in our community and we keep our, our, our community safe? Right. So a few things. One is with this mask campaign, we hope that if we can stabilize our hospital supply, that we will put a mask on everybody in East Toronto. Be our goal and is to keep the army of sewers sewing so that everybody could get a mask. We really think that's vital. So when you go to the grocery store, uh, when you're out for whatever reason, you can put it on and be safe. Um, the long-term care home is, is perhaps a part that does worry us the most in the hospital sector. It's uh, it's really sad what's happened in homes like St. Clair O'Connor. Of course, our seniors are the most vulnerable. They li live in tight quarters. They have low staffing ratios anyway. They don't have the uh, infection control standards and approaches that hospitals do. And so we've reached out to many of them in East Toronto to try with our head of uh, geriatrics, Dr. Jared Rosenberg, um, and our, our geriatric nurses and our long-term care outreach nurses to try to galvanize a response that better protects uh, our seniors who live either in congregate living or in, in long-term care facilities. Um, so we are working with a lot of local people to try to, to, to protect them. We are at St. Clair O'Connor trying to keep people in place who have advanced directives and who wish to die in situ, not have to come to hospital, that kind of thing. Um, but I would say that is the thing that worries me the most is the state of our seniors and the need to think both within the walls of Michael Guerin that has, you know, a capacity and a skill set and wonderful people to deliver acute care, but also through partnership with others who also need to stand up a robust response. You know, they need access to PPE, they need access to cleaning products, they need access to our standards, they need access to our people many times. And so we're really working in, within our community to stretch the Michael Guerin <laughs> model outside the walls at 825 Coxwell into communities and neighborhoods when that is required, hoping it's never required, but in, in places like St. Clair O'Connor, uh, you know, we're there trying to help. Well, I, when I see the work of Michael Guerin to develop one of the first assessment centers in Ontario, when I see the work of Michael Guerin to get out into the community to protect seniors like at places, uh, like St. Clair O'Connor community. And when I see that you're tripling assessment capacity, knowing that we, this is one of the critical areas of action, I just am very thankful for everything you are doing. I encourage everyone to get out and, and contribute to the mask effort if they can. And do you have anything else you want to, you want to add? I mean, I'm just very thankful for everything you guys are doing. And, and we're thankful for this part of our community. You know, the PPE drive was amazing. And I know personal friends who dropped off supplies because they had them. And uh, I, I can tell you the love of our community for Michael Guerin Hospital has really been felt and it lifts our spirits to know that so many people uh, out there are rooting for us and cheering for us and banging pots and pans for the healthcare workers. It, it does make us feel better. And to know that we're doing 100% what we can to keep our community safe. And, uh, and so 
Um, thanks to everybody uh, for all your moral support and we're happy to keep you posted on how we're doing inside. And don't hesitate. I, I know so much of your work will ultimately depend upon the work of the federal government and the provincial government working in cooperation to make sure you have the resources, whether it's the testing capacity, the human resource capacity, or the PPE that you absolutely need. And so don't hesitate to be in touch with me and, and so that I can be a voice on your behalf as well. And, and otherwise, thanks so much. Thank you, Nate. Take care. Next, here's my conversation with Professor Allen about the need to respond to this pandemic with a wartime effort. Danielle, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to, glad to talk with you. And you, I was looking at your background. I first read your Washington Post op-ed from March 26th calling for really strong mobilization action. But then when I went underneath that to the three white papers that your team has published, I then saw you have largely actually published in political theory, sociology, history, and how did you come to lead a team of experts in this health crisis? So thank you for that question. I think it gets to the heart of the matter. Um, so I direct um, the Edmund J. Stafford Center for Ethics at Harvard, and we are a center that focuses broadly on ethics and public affairs. And what that means ultimately is that we try to support, um, if you don't mind my calling it this, uh, sort of non-technocratic approaches to decision-making. Yeah. What that means is we work really hard to build teams that bring multiple perspectives together, including technical expertise. Um, but there's a real strong focus on making sure that we're putting together the people who are thinking about our overarching objectives, our core values and so forth with the technical experts. So our method, our working method for years has been about coordinating different kinds of expertise. So when this problem you know, emerged, there was a certain point where I reached out um, to another colleague, Ezekiel Emanuel at Penn and said, how can we help? You know, we're an ethics center sitting here. This is what we need to know how to do. And he said, well, the hardest question right now is how to balance the sort of economic um, costs and the public health um, costs and so forth and how to have an integrated strategy. So we jumped in to trying to answer that specific question. But what that immediately made clear was that you had to answer a whole lot of other questions simultaneously. You really need an integrated policy framework. And so we started building out a network of people who could answer different parts of the puzzle what a critical thing to do to build that team around you first. And so when it comes to public health experts, I was reading, I mean, obviously core competency as a matter of justice and morals and, and ethicists, but right. you're surrounded by a team of public health experts to lean on to ensure you've got the best evidence at your disposal. Absolutely. We wouldn't say anything, make any arguments without being sure that we absolutely were up to speed with the state of art scientific understanding. So we're really lucky at Harvard to have access to leading researchers at the Chan School of Public Health. So for example, Mark Lipsitch and Rebecca Kahn, we've been checking in with them repeatedly and we make one of our basic practices as a sort of weekly matter to get a briefing about, well, what are the most recent scientific papers? How should we think about asymptomatic cases and case presentation? How should we think about immunity? When will, what's the timetable for really understanding immunity, et cetera, the whole range of it. So. I mean, that is really, it's sort of like, I think of it a bit as being about a sort of symphony conductor. You really, you absolutely need that state-of-the-art scientific expertise. But at the same time, I think one of the things I've learned that's been most powerful is that public health modelers, as they got into modeling responses to this, um, very often in their models um, sort of built in a status quo picture of socioeconomic realities. So in some sense, they modeled around the current level of capacity for testing that say Canada or the US happens to have. And right. so it became clear that what we needed was, well, if you could completely transform the infrastructure for delivering testing, well, how then do we model the public health strategies? And you have to sort of be able to integrate 
that sort of socioeconomic transformation piece, infrastructure investment piece um, with the public health strategies. And so that's what we're, we're trying to do. And it's a useful or an interesting point about testing and, and taking a step back and saying it's not about existing capacity, it's about reshaping and mobilizing to blow the current capacity out of the water and, and expand it in, in, to such a large degree, given the scale of the pandemic that we have. And when I look at South Korea as an example that I read about quite a lot, but even I see what's happening in Germany right now, mm -hmm. you wrote about mobilize and transition in your piece, and we see countries doing that, I think, to some extent. Absolutely. I mean, I think across Europe, we're seeing countries have transitioned to embrace of a mobilize and transition paradigm, where the goal is to transition to pandemic resilience. Um, and what that really means is that you have the capacity to see the disease through massive testing and to treat it and to quarantine people who have the disease and so forth. So that currently we use a combination of social distancing, stay at home orders and so forth things like testing to try to decelerate um, the rate of, of transmission and bring ourselves back to a place where the transmission rate is below one and back to a place where our hospitals can handle um, treatment of severe cases. And then ideally, once we're back at that place, we, can, we will have built up, we'll have mobilized and invested in a sort of testing infrastructure that permits us to control the disease over time. And that's what pandemic resilience is about, really. So we're not talking about eliminating the disease. I think that's been one of the hard things in this conversation. Lots of public health strategies are focused on containment, which has the goal really of elimination. At this point, we have such prevalence that elimination is not a real possibility. Right. So we have to understand the kind of control that nonetheless permits us to keep our economy working. And the key to that is really the testing and contact tracing regime. After reading your work, I then saw information coming out of Germany that they are testing not only people who have symptoms, but they're testing more randomly within the population at large, both exactly. to get a sense of where they're at, but also to ensure that they identify people who have had the disease who can then come back and, and proactively support the economy. Exactly, that's exactly what we should be doing. So while we're in this phase of collective social distancing, which we absolutely need right now, we should also be testing broadly um, in order to exempt some people from those stay-at-home orders. So anybody who's already immune should be exempted. So the tricky thing is we don't actually have a full picture of immunity yet. It's not clear how long immunity lasts, for example. So we're still learning about that. So the tests for a negative um, sort of presence of the virus are equally important. And so what you really need is a regime that can test critical workers who are exempt from stay-at-home orders on a sort of every two or three day basis to make sure that they stay um, free from the virus. Um, but that is a hugely important thing to getting the economy going again. Because if you think about it, what we've got you know, at the moment is sort of 90% of the population staying at home, but that 90% of the population, only one to 2% is actually carrying the virus. So the question is, how can we get as many people out as possible? It's clear that ramping up testing and ensuring that for elderly care, for childcare, and, and for various critical services for vulnerable populations that we, had, we are able to test people quickly. Healthcare, frontline workers, the most obvious one, but we're able to test people quickly and regularly and have the capacity, and not just capacity for testing kits, which is, which, but the big takeaway from your work was the supply chain and human resources to make that happen at the same time. Exactly. It is a big logistical um, piece of work, no question about it. That's the sense in which the right metaphor is putting a country on a war footing. It is mobilizing parts of the economy, redeploying labor, 
um, it is about achieving enough uh, coordination sort of at a national level to ensure that supply chain all the way from the test production to distribution and last mile test administration. I think there's lots of room for jurisdictional authority at all the levels of, of a federal structure. And I think that's a good thing. I think our federal structures are flexible and adaptable that are an asset to us. We have to figure out how to activate them as an asset. Even in that context, though, I think the important thing to say is that we need all parts of our federal structures working together, including the national part. So federalism is great. It gives us that flexibility and adaptability. It works best when all of its layers, federal, state, municipal, and so forth, um, are working in coordination with each other. Yeah, and without too great of a comment, I, I do feel lucky to live in Canada for, for that reason alone. When <laughs> you, no yeah. comment on your part, that's okay. No comment but, on my part. <laughs> We're but, working uh, on it. I have confidence in us. We're going to get there. When it comes to, I mean, I I could ask you about just the notion of, of Medicare for all too. From as a Canadian, I can't think of a better example for Medicare for all than than, than something like this. But I want I want to get to this uh, one last question on this notion of mobilizing and a wartime footing and you make note permits maximum maximal mobility for as large a portion of the population as possible that has to be the right answer and when it comes to a wartime footing are we at the point of working collaboratively with companies or are we at the point of really centralizing decision making to make things happen in a in a, in a fast way given the scope of, of the efforts that need to happen so we've been digging into the history of World War II a little bit to try to understand that, to try to understand what the best structures are. And I think where we're landing at the moment, I mean, the work is still ongoing, is the notion that something like the War Production Board, which was a private partner collaboration, um, would be the right structure. So we do need leading firms to come together into a coordinated um, entity, but they really need to do that working under the direction of um, senior elected um, leadership and policymakers. So in that regard, I think it's not a sort of de-registre model. It's not a sort of let's nationalize supply chains and so forth. Um, it really is about the elected officials working to pull together that what we call testing supply board um, to get that production, that supply line organized to make sure all the parts of it get the support they need and get the public investment they need. So that's the other really important role on the part of the national government is to, to, to funnel public investment into that supply chain so that it's functional and all the pieces um, have confidence and can coordinate in relationship to each other, knowing that the whole structure will get that funding injection. Thanks to Professor Allen for joining us. You can find the white papers from her team on the website for Harvard Center for Ethics. And a big thank you, of course, to Sarah Downey and her team of frontline health professionals for everything that they're doing in our community out of Michael Guerin. You can find out more information about their efforts and how to help their efforts at both the foundation's website and the hospital's website. And lastly, remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes, including episodes with Elizabeth May and Hetty Fry. Mm -hmm.